heard a warning. Maybe you're like Tim, and you were hearing the tornado sirens, and so you went upstairs instead of downstairs. I was going to talk about hurricanes this morning, and because there were no storms that had happened recently when I was writing this sermon, but instead I think I'll talk about my experience Friday night. So Friday night I was FaceTiming my fiance. I'd had dinner, and I'd been hearing about storms all day, but I'd not really paid too much attention. I went to college in Iowa, which was right in Tornado Alley, so I'd been around hurricanes and storms, or not hurricanes, but tornadoes and storms, things like that. But I get a text from my mom around 9 that says, hey, charge your phone, because my phone's never charged. Charge your devices. Make sure you're ready, because there's some strong storms coming towards you. And so I listened to her and charged my phone and charged my computer. But I told Alicia, I said, I don't think these storms are going to do anything. And so I sat there and I talked to her for a while. And then for some reason, I just happened to check what the weather was in Martinsville because I figured whatever was happening in Martinsville would affect us. When I looked at the weather in Martinsville, it said tornado warning. And I thought, well, maybe it still won't affect us. You know, maybe it'll just kind of dip around us or something, you know. And so I was just sitting up and then all of a sudden I get an alert on my phone, tornado warning, Trafalgar, Indiana. I'm like, Okay, maybe it's just like conditions, you know, would say that there could be a tornado. Then I hear the sirens going off, you know, and my dog is looking at me like, can we just go down to the basement, please, you know? <laughs> and so grabbed him, finally went down to the basement and waited down there. But I'm like, I still don't think this is a big deal. I still don't think this is going to be a big storm, you know? All of a sudden we hear the wind blowing and things kind of moving around and stuff outside. Of course, my dog thinks it's a person who's upstairs. So he's barking because he thinks someone has entered into the house. And I'm like, no, this isn't a big deal, you know. And then the power went out. And when the power went out, I thought, okay, this is a real storm. You know, this is a real tornado. This is finally come. And so it came and passed. And we were fortunate not to have any damage to our apartment that we were in. Um, We ended up going the whole night without power. Uh, We woke up at 2 a.m. because there was an alarm type thing that was running out of battery. So at 2 a.m. it was flashing and making noises to like let me know that it was out of battery, which woke my dog up and he had to go outside. When he went outside, the neighbor's grill had blown into their yard. And so that was unusual for him. So he was barking and letting the whole neighborhood know that that grill was in the other neighbor's yard and it was not supposed to be there. So around two in the morning, I'm chasing him around the yard, you know, as he's barking around and things like that. And so finally got to bed, woke up and had a great day yesterday. But as I think about all that, I think about different times that I've been warned about something and I didn't listen to the warnings. Now, I did call my mom yesterday and I thanked her for telling me to charge my phone because if I had not charged my phone... It would have been a whole different kind of hard and difficult night for me, Friday night. One of the things I want us to look at this morning, especially as we look at these two verses that we looked at last week, is how the Bible foretells, warns, predicts the gospel. One of the things we've seen in the book of Acts over and over and over again is the apostles not only preaching the gospel, not only preaching Jesus Christ, but preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. Now, in next week's sermon, we're going to look at how does Acts, the book of Acts, which we've been studying together, how does Acts tell us the gospel? How does Acts tell us who God is? How does Acts tell us what sin is? How does Acts tell us who Christ is and what he did for us on the cross? And how does Acts tell us how we can have a relationship with God? But as I was thinking about this Sunday, I knew we were going to take a break from our Acts series. What I wanted to do was every time it talks about Paul, Peter, Barnabas, 
preaching the gospel from the Old Testament, preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures, I wanted to see what that was like. Because I think there's some misconceptions about the Old Testament out there. I think there's a misconception, first of all, that the Old Testament isn't relevant for today. That at its purpose, it has a lot of stories, but it's not really relevant for today because we have the New Testament. You know, some people think of the Old Testament as like the Bible 1.0. The New Testament is a software update and the Old Testament isn't. Does it matter anymore? That's not true. The Old Testament is still very relevant for today when you understand it correctly. Some people wrongly say that the Old Testament, we need to unhitch from it or that we need to not be connected to the Old Testament anymore. I don't think that's true either. The Old Testament, like I said, is still relevant for us today. Some people say that the Old Testament preaches a different gospel. Some people look at the Old Testament and they say there's a gospel for Jewish people. And they say for the New Testament, there's a gospel for Gentile people. That's not true either. It is one gospel from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And in fact, as we look at these passages this morning, and there's a lot of them, I'm just going to tell you. As we look at the Old Testament, I don't think the question that we should be asking is, how can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament? I think the question you should ask is, how can you not preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Because we can clearly see from Genesis to Revelation, there is one God, there is one gospel, there is one Savior, Jesus Christ. He's foretold in the Old Testament, and he's seen, and he does his work on the cross, and he is experienced in the New Testament. So we're looking at how does the Old Testament explain to us the gospel this morning? That's our big idea. That's the question that we're trying to answer. Why do we need the Old Testament? Well, it kind of connects to how we need God's word. God's word answers life's biggest questions. All of us, all humans, everyone, whether you're saved, unsaved, whether you're black, white, or some other ethnicity, male, female, whatever you are, whatever background you have, whatever walk of life you come through, all of us face life's greatest questions and have since before you and I were born. We ask questions like, who is God? Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And everyone's going to answer those questions in one way or another. And what I want to show us today is how does the Bible answer those questions? How does the Bible preach to us the gospel? We're going to look at that from the Old Testament, how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament to give us the gospel. Now, I will admit that when I started to do this study, I did not think it would take me as long to put everything together, and I didn't think there'd be as many verses, things like that. So just warning, you know, on the front side, there are a lot of verses of scripture. It is going to be very hard to write them down. So out back, we have handouts. We have handouts with the verses on them for you to grab. You can grab them now. You can grab them after the sermon is over. I just say that to say, don't think that you have to write all these verses in your little slots on your bulletin. I don't think they're all going to fit, at least if you have my handwriting, because I write really big. Okay. So all the verses are on a handout in the back as well as all the verses are going to be on the screen for us as well. So you're not trying to, you know, have smoke coming from your Bible because you're turning all around the Bible, if that makes sense, okay? All the verses are going to be on the screen in the handout um, to help us just as we do this study. But you can check them in your Bible, I promise. They're the same verses. I'm not trying to lie, okay? This morning we want to look at four questions every person in life will ask and answer for themselves concerning the gospel. You can ask them in the Old Testament. You can ask them in the New Testament. I think they show us the same gospel. 
Now, one more warning I want to give before we go on. I am not trying to say that we don't need the New Testament. We need the New Testament. The New Testament tells us how these promises are fulfilled in Christ. They tell us who Christ is, how he came to earth, how he died, how he rose again. We need the New Testament. Yes. What I'm trying to show us is how the New Testament connects to the Old Testament to form one plan of God. So with that being said, let's look at our first question this morning. Who is God? Who is God? Every person on earth will answer the question, who is God in one way or another? Some say that God doesn't exist, and that's atheism. Some say that God is in everything. That's pantheism. Everything's a God. My dog is a God. My chair is a God. My shoe is a God. Almost a dog. Uh, The sun is a God. Everybody will answer that question in one way or another. So what does the Bible teach us about God? We're going to look at two different things that the Bible teaches us about God. First of all, his character. And second of all, his works. Now, I went a little extensive on his character, so we're going to look at five different attributes of his character. Then on the handouts in the back, there's like seven or eight more on there for you to look up on your own, and I've got explanations with all of those. Let's look at his character. First of all, he is eternal. If you want to know who God is, he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how it all happened. This is how the earth came into being. You might ask, where did God come from? Good question. He's always been. He's always been here. No one created God. God didn't have a start date. God was here from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything begins with God. There is a God who created everything. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God has been around since before time from everlasting to everlasting. You might ask me, how long is that? That's forever. That is forever. God is everlasting. This is clearly seen in Genesis 1-1 and Psalm 90. Not only is God eternal, secondly, we see that he is three in one. He's three in one. He's one God in three persons. This is a concept of the Trinity, okay? Now, the Trinity is something that can be difficult for us to understand. As Christians, I'll admit that even in Bible college, it was hard to try to study the doctrine of the Trinity. It's hard for us to understand how something can be one, but can also be three as well. But we clearly see that it's one God, three persons. Notice with me in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we see that God is one. Now the interesting thing is Elohim in the Old Testament is plural. So even when we look later at Genesis, we're going to see that it says, let us make man in our own image. So we see plural, but he's also one. Here, Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There's not many gods. There is one God. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God is one, but God is also our. He's plural. He's three. Well, you might say, how does that work? How can God be one and three? Well, 
can give you a short answer, but I can't give you the full answer until we get to heaven because it's something we just can't fully grasp, I believe, on earth. But one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you might ask, do we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And I would say, yes. You see all of them working at different places. In fact, in creation, I don't have this verse for us, but in creation you're going to see the Spirit hovered over the waters in the New Testament, it talks about how Christ was there in creation. There's one passage I want to point out, Isaiah 48, verses 16 and 17. And it says this, And now the Lord your God has sent me and his spirit, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So we see there, the Lord your God, God the Father, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, then your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, which I believe is a reference to Christ. One God with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are there other places that explain that further to us? Yes, I think they're in the New Testament. But I do think we see all of them working in different ways in the Old Testament. We see them, I believe, here in Isaiah 48. So, God is eternal. He's three in one. Thirdly, let's see that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? God is in control. God is all-powerful. He's the one who is orchestrating everything. I do a lot of subbing sometimes up here for the school system in Indian Creek. The number one thing I hear is, hey, that's not how our teacher does things. That's not what our teacher would do. Our teacher lets us do this. Our teacher lets us play on our phones. Our teacher lets us go run out in the street. Now, a lot of that isn't true, okay? But what I always say back is, I'm not your teacher, so I don't care. I mean, I do care what the teacher wants them to do. But ultimately, it's my classroom. It's my rules. You're going to listen to what I tell you to do. In the same way, God is sovereign. There's no one above God. There's no one who tells God what to do. He is in control. He's all-powerful. He is sovereign. A couple verses that talk about that. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We talked a little bit about casting lots in Acts 1 when they were trying to make a decision on who was going to replace Judas. It was this idea of throwing these stones and trying to see which lot was going to be the stone that was correct. They had other ways of doing this as well, similar to almost if we drew straws or something like that. But the idea was that when you cast lots, there was no earthly way that you were going to know what the outcome was going to be, but it came from the Lord. So God is in control of even that system of trying to make a decision. I think even a better passage is Lamentations 3, 37 through 38. And it says this, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? God is the one who speaks. If anything happens, if anything takes place, it comes from God. God is not caught by surprise. I just want to mention this, and I meant to say something earlier about this, but the tragedy in Nashville, the shooting that happened at that Christian school in Nashville. First of all, horrible tragedy. We pray for the families. We pray for the people involved in that tragedy. Don't make the mistake of thinking that that caught God by surprise, that God did not know that was going to happen. Now, you might say, why did God allow that to happen? And my answer is, I don't know. I can't know the full complexities of God's plan. I can tell you this, that it did not surprise God. It did not take God off guard, and it did not ruin God's plans. 
God has a plan. He has a purpose. I think he'll use the situation for the good of his people to help other people know and trust in the Lord. But we still pray for that tragedy. God is in control of all things. So he's sovereign. We also see that he's holy and just. This is essential to understanding the gospel. It is the holiness of God. It's the way that we're most unlike God. What does it mean for God to be holy? The word holy means to be set apart, to be clean, to be apart from sin, to be pure. So it's not only you don't have any sin, but it's also you are holy and you're pure, and therefore you have to be separated from sin. We look at a couple of passages with this, Leviticus 27. Leviticus is all about these laws and these different regulations to keep Israel holy. And the verse says in verse 7, Consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So because of God's holiness, we therefore are to be holy as well and set apart. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. He's separate. He cannot be next to sin. If you were to read that passage in Isaiah 6 further, you would see that God is high and lifted up in heaven. He's apart from mankind. Why is that? Because he cannot be around sin. Alicia and I have been doing a lot of cleaning in the apartment trying to get everything ready. How would she like it if she just spent a whole bunch of time doing dishes and cleaning dishes and everything, and then I put the clean dishes with the dirty dishes? You think she would like that? I don't think she would like that very much, do you? In the same way, we are to be holy, set apart. It means that we're not to be around sin. We're not to be tainted with sin. God cannot be around sin. He is holy and set apart, and therefore that is why he sits in heaven, as it says in Isaiah chapter 6. He's elevated above the sinful world. Lastly, I want us to see that he is loving. He is loving. The love of the Lord. There's several different words for love in the Old Testament. One of them is hesed, love. It is a covenant, faithful, steadfast love of God. And look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. I love this verse. Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah, we're actually translating it right now in my Hebrew class. He's called to go to Nineveh, which was this sinful nation. He doesn't want to go because of how sinful they are. So he goes to Tarshish. When he goes to Tarshish, he is eaten by a whale. God gives him a second chance. He goes back to Nineveh after he's spit out of the whale, preaches to them. But when he preaches to them, he's not happy about it because they get they repent. They turn from their sin and God spares them. And I love what this verse says. Look at what Jonah says. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, if you take that verse out of context, you think that's a great thing that Jonah's saying about God. No, Jonah is angry about it because he's saying, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you were going to give them a second chance. I knew you were going to let them off the hook for their sin. He said, I knew you were a gracious and loving God. That's how loving God is. You think about that? That's how loving God is that Jonah knew that was such an absolute fact of God that he's like, I don't want to go preach to those people because they're going to repent. They're going to turn to the Lord. We also see it in Isaiah 54.10. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, 
but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. We've seen a lot of wind damage this last weekend, right? Telephone poles being snapped as Sue and I were driving through the regional yesterday. We saw telephone poles in half, trees everywhere, a shed that was just completely destroyed. Think about how much power it takes to do all of that. Think about how much more power it would take for mountains to be lifted up, for hills to be removed from the earth. You think about all that, but yet God's love does not depart from those who are his children. So God's love is part of his character. Now you'll see on your handout, the handouts that are in the back, there are other attributes of God that I think are important. In fact, there's more attributes of God than I could even put on this list. But these are some, and we don't have time to go through them this morning. But you can look at these. They all have scripture references with them. And I gave a little explanation. So God is self-existent. means that he needs no one else. And in Exodus 3, I am who I am. So that's kind of the idea of those. You can go study those later. But the five that we looked at, I think, are essential to try and understand the gospel from the Old Testament. Now let's keep going. We've seen God's character. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's holy. He's eternal. He's three in one. Let's look at his works. What does God do? Not only who he is, but what does God do? In Genesis 1.1, we won't turn there, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates. Do you realize that there's no one else who can create something? See all these people on YouTube and other different sites, they're called content creators. But actually, God is the only one who can create something from nothing. He takes man, he takes the world, and he creates it all from nothing. So God is the creator he creates. Secondly, we see that he provides. God provides. And think about this. Sometimes we can look at God and we can say, why... Is it fair that God did this in my life? God's not being fair to me because I don't have this. I need this. He's not done this for me. But we don't think about how much God provides for us. In Genesis chapter 45, we see this account between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers were in this famine. And if you know the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was, um, they were jealous of him and Jacob's love for Joseph. They sell him into slavery. He's then sent to prison because he was wrongly condemned by Potiphar. And so when he's in prison, he rises up in the ranks of Egypt and he ends up becoming second in command of the whole nation. And he helps the nation figure out this famine crisis. So a bunch of people don't have food during this time. And when Joseph goes back to his brothers, Later on, he'll say the phrase, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. But sometimes we forget Genesis 45 in this passage where it says, and now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God's plan, the way that God orchestrates all of the events in Joseph's life, preserve not only his life, his family's life, but all those in the nation of Egypt as well. God kept them alive. We see that he creates, he provides, he also judges. Psalm 96, 13. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. We see that God is a God who judges. Now, sometimes we don't like that word judgment, but God, because he's sovereign, because he's just, 
because he's holy, he's the one that has the right to judge the world. All those passages that talk about don't take revenge, don't judge others, it's not because God isn't going to judge someone, it's because God is the ultimate judge. He has the right to do that. All people are accountable to God. Let's lastly see that God saves. God saves. Exodus 15:2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. See that God saves even in the Old Testament. Now, is this the same type of salvation that we see in the New Testament? No, but that will be predicted later. But what we want to see in the character of God is that God is a God who saves his children. This is right after Israel was saved from the Red Sea, saved from Egypt. And if you look at Israel's history, when they talk about salvation, they're always going to go back to that moment in some way that they were saved from Egypt. They were saved from the Red Sea. So this is the God that we see of the Old Testament. Now, many people want to try to make God in their own image. They want to say that God is this or that. There's some who even believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different people. That's not true. We see the same God throughout the Old and the New Testament and how he reveals himself in the Bible. If you ever had someone misunderstand you or have a bad impression of you, when I was interning in college, the church that I was interning at, they put my picture on the screen, but I don't think they got my full body. They just got me from like the shoulders up. So everybody kind of thought I was a short guy for some reason. I don't know why. They all expected me to be this kind of small guy. So when I walked in, I'm obviously not a small guy, you know, they all looked at me and they're like, I said, hi, my name's Lance. They're like, you're huge. And I said, it's nice to meet you too. You know, I'm going to be the intern here this summer. But everyone was just so surprised at how big I was because they had a I guess, weird angled picture from what they had showed on the screen. In the same way, sometimes we read verses about God in the Old Testament. And yes, God has wrath. He judges others. I'm not trying to say those things aren't true. They are true. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. What we're trying to see is a full picture of who God is. As we share the gospel with others, as we believe the gospel for ourselves, all of us must start here with this fact that there is a God and it is not you. And that is not something we want to believe. All of us in our sinful ways, we want to make ourselves God, our desires God. That's not true. There is a God. He's clearly seen through scripture and it's not us. My prayer is that we recognize that this morning. The Old Testament, the Bible in general, answers the second question, and that is, it's, com- it's a combined question, who is man and what is sin? Who is man and what is sin? Genesis one twenty six. we looked at it earlier. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. Man is made in the image of God. What does that tell us? First of all, man is made by God. There's no one who came to being who was here on the earth on our own. We're all made by God. God created man in his image. We are all accountable to God because we're made in his image. I also want to say this. All life has value. 
because of that verse, because man is made in the image of God, all life has value. That's something that we have to remember from Scripture, that no matter who you are, saved, unsaved, your background, your ethnicity, your gender, your life has value. All life has value because you're made in God's image. So we see that man is created in the image of God. Secondly, we see that man is sinful. Man is sinful. God created man, and God said that man was good. I don't want us to miss that. The, the world, man, when God created man, he said that man was created good. But in Genesis 3, the passage we see here, we see that sin enters into the world because of man. We don't have time to go through the story. We all know it well that because of Adam and Eve's sin, sin enters into the world. Notice what he says to Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see from this verse the world is cursed because of sin and that there is death because of the sin of Adam. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Just stopping even right there. Think about that statement. So many people follow your heart, believe your heart. What does God say? What does the Bible say? Your heart is deceitful. It's lying to you. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust your desires. You have to believe that to understand the gospel. Many people want to think, I'm actually not that bad of a person. And I'm not trying to beat each other up or beat you up as preaching to you. But the Bible tells us that we are, that our hearts are deceitful, that it's desperately wicked. So then the question becomes, who can understand the heart? And it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, the fruit according to the fruit of his deeds. So our hearts are sinful. We've sinned against God. Who understands our hearts? Who knows our hearts? It is God. God knows how sinful we are. I've been doing some grilling lately, and one of the things I've been trying to do is get my steaks or my meat to a certain temperature. Now, before, when I didn't have a meat thermometer, I would just try to look on the outside, and I'd try to, I'd honestly overcook them most of the time because I didn't want them to be undercooked. Now, sometimes when you're cooking meat, you can see the outside, and it's almost burnt. It's really, really dark, and you can think that the meat is done. Then you cut it open, and you see that it's raw on the inside. So one of the things I got, we got in our wedding registry, was a meat thermometer. What does it do? You stick it into the middle, and it tells you what the temperature is on the inside of the steak. Now, sometimes I just stick it in there, you know, so many times trying to see all the different temperatures. I think I'm ruining it, honestly. But, and I'm just playing with the meat thermometer. But it's so interesting to see how when you look in the inside of the meat, you can see how cooked it truly is. The same way, all of us can look good on the outside. We can have people think well of us, think that we're good people. But God knows our hearts. Again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. But scripture tells us that our hearts are deceitful. 
We can't trust them. We not only see that man was created by God, that man is sinful, but we see that man is condemned because of sin. Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam and Eve this before they sin. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. What was the punishment for their sin? Death. And not just physical death, even though that came with it. Spiritual death. Separation from God. You realize if they hadn't have eaten of the tree, they would have had fellowship with God forever, I believe. But yet they eat, they ate of the tree. And you can't just blame them. All of us have sinned. And because of our sin, we're all separated from God. We all have both physical and spiritual death. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. All of us think this is the right way to go. But if it's not from the Lord, if it's in our own flesh, it's the way of destruction. It's the way of death. Psalm 92, 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. The way of the evil one, the way of the wicked, those who don't know God, their path leads to death, separation from God. Do you understand who we are, according to the Bible, as men and women, as sinners that were separated from God because of our sin, that we are doomed to destruction on our own? This is the message of the Bible. This is the message of the Old and New Testament. Let's look thirdly at who is Jesus and what did he do for sin? Who is Jesus and what did he do for sin? We're going to look at five different things that the Bible tells us about Christ. First of all, Christ is foretold. And Christ is foretold from the beginning of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 as God is speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent to Satan, he speaks to all of them. But what I find most fascinating is what he says to Satan. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. From the beginning, from Adam and Eve's sin, we see that mankind is not only separated from God, but the Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman, is foretold here. He says, I will put enmity, so this tension between Satan and mankind. Satan would bruise the heel of Christ. Yes, Christ would die on the cross. But he would crush the head of the serpent. We see this expectation from the Old Testament that Christ would come and he would conquer death and he would conquer Satan. And by the way, there's all these passages in Genesis. Have you ever wondered why Genesis is so graphic? Why Cain and Abel, why Cain kills Abel and Cain's sin is mentioned? Why at the end of the story of Noah do we see Noah getting drunk and being naked and his sons have to cover him up? Why do we see Abraham lying to Pharaoh about Sarah? We see that Abraham, though he has faith, he's not a righteous guy, at least from what we see in those passages. And we see all of this sin over and over and over again. And what I believe is this, is that it's showing us that that is not the promised Messiah. If you think about it, they were expecting, Adam and Eve were expecting, maybe Cain is going to be the one to save us from sin. No, Cain sinned. 
Maybe it would be Noah who God saved from the flood. No, Noah was sinful as well. Maybe it's Abraham who obtained favor from God. Abraham was sinful too. Maybe it was David who had a man who was a man after God's own heart. No, David sinned with Bathsheba. And over and over and over again, we see people who knew God, who had a relationship with God, but they're not perfect. But they sin and they mess up. And it shows us that they are not Christ. I think the Old Testament points us to Christ even from Genesis chapter 3. So we see that Jesus was foretold. We see that he was foretold that he would be born. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child would be born He would be born as a man, but he would be called the mighty God. Why is that? Because he's 100% man and he's 100% God. He'd be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's foretold that Christ would be born. It's even foretold where he would be born. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me... One who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient of days. Christ would be born in Bethlehem. This one who comes from God, who is called the ancient of days. And it said it's been foretold throughout the Old Testament. It points us to Christ and that he would come. And it not only tells us that he would come as God and as man, but we're told that he would be a king. 2 Samuel 7 Verses 12 through 13, God is speaking to David, showing us that David would have a line forever. It says this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This Christ who would come, who would be born, he would be the king. He will reign forever. We not only see that he would be a king, but we also see that he would be a sacrifice. Now, the first three, I think the Jews had a pretty good understanding of who Christ would be and that he would be all three of those things. I don't think they quite understood the last two. Leviticus 4 verse 35 shows us his expectation for a sacrifice needed for sin. Leviticus shows us that God is holy and it really also shows us that we are not Notice what it says. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed and he shall be forgiven. I don't think there was any power necessarily in an animal being killed, but this pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, what Christ would do for sin. If you read your Old Testament, Leviticus, all the way through the Old Testament, you're going to see all these different sacrifices needed for sin. And why is that? Because it points to Christ who would come and be the ultimate sacrifice. Now you might say, does the Old Testament tell us that Christ would die on the cross for sin? Yes, it does. Isaiah chapter 53, 
verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There's so much that I could mention in Isaiah chapter 53. You can go back and read that chapter foretelling of this Savior, this suffering servant who would die for sin. Psalm 22.1, direct quotation of what Christ would later say on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is what we celebrate during this time, during Easter, that this foretold Christ, this promised Messiah, came, lived, and died on the cross for sins. So it's foretold that Christ would suffer. It's also foretold that Christ would rise again. Yes, the resurrection is also seen in the Old Testament. Two passages. The first one, I think, hints at it. The second one, I think it's more clearly seen. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, or verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That same passage that talks about the suffering of Christ also says that God, that this person would see his offspring, that God would prolong his days. I think hinting to us that Christ would rise again. Obviously, the most famous passage foretelling the resurrection is Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts 2, Peter uses this passage to show us that the resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament, that God would not abandon Christ. That after Christ died, he would not stay dead. He would rise again before his body saw corruption. He would be a living Savior. All these verses and more point us to Jesus Christ. The message of the Old Testament tells us about God, tells us about man, tells us about our sin. But it also tells us about the Savior. So often we think that the Bible is just all about us. It's not. It points us to Christ. Now be careful. Don't try to find Christ in every phrase in the Old Testament. I think it as a whole points us to Christ. I don't think we need to look into different stories and try to see Christ where he's not, if that makes sense. But the Old Testament points us to Jesus, our need for a Savior. So we see that the Old Testament answers the question of who is God. There's a God that created the universe and it is not us. It shows us who we are. We're sinful. We're created by God, but yet we sin against him. We're condemned because of our sin. It tells us about Christ, who Jesus was, is, and will be. And lastly, it shows us how we can have a relationship with God. How can man have a relationship with God? In the Old Testament, we see a relationship between God and man, but it's still separated. They have to go through a priest. They have to go through the veil, the temple. They have to have sacrifices. We don't see this personal relationship that we see in the New Testament. But it is predicted in two passages. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you think, how could they remember all these laws? How could they remember all these things to do? It's foretold in Jeremiah that when Christ comes, he would put the law on our heart. How does he do that? I believe through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit who comes, convicts us of sin, points us to Christ, help us, helps us understand God's word. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A personal relationship with God, how we can have a relationship with God is foretold, I believe, in the Old Testament, pointing us to what Christ would do for us. Friends, the Old Testament accurately displays the work that Christ would accomplish. None of us can accomplish this on our own. You can't pay for one drop uh, or for one single sin in your life on your own. None of us can atone for our own sin. I, believe, I know there's a lot of verses, there's a lot of different areas that I went to go back and study these notes. There's more that you can find, I'm sure. I only tried to take a summary of all of this. What I don't want us to think is that the New Testament is not important. The New Testament shows us how Christ fulfills all of these promises. What I want us to see is how God worked through the Old Testament to show us what he would do in the New Testament. Why do we do this today? So we'd better understand the gospel. Even if you've been saved for many, many years, maybe you've just been recently saved, it's always so important that we understand the gospel, who God is, who we are, what Christ did for our sin. It makes us better appreciate the Old Testament, what God has done for us in the Old Testament, the plan of God. And it helps us better share the gospel with others. So with this in mind, let's reflect on these final three questions. First of all, do you know and believe the gospel? Maybe this is your first time hearing the gospel. Maybe you've heard it your whole life, but you've never taken the time to know and believe the gospel. All these things are true. We see it in the Old and New Testament, that there is a God and it's not you that you were created by God, but yet you're sinful. You've rejected God. That Jesus Christ came and he was the sacrifice for your sin and that you can have a relationship with God. Do you know and believe the gospel this morning? Secondly, do you read the Old Testament? So many of us sometimes in January, February, we can get through Genesis and a Bible reading plan, maybe Exodus, but then we get to Leviticus and we think, I just can't do this anymore, you know? Do you read the Old Testament? Why is it important to read the Old Testament? Because we see the plan of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's not less important. It's just as important, but we have to understand it in the context of, God, of how God wants us to know and understand his word. So do you read the Old Testament? Think about this. How do you share the gospel with others? Now, if you're going to share the gospel with someone, you can use the New Testament. I'm not trying to say that you can't. But what I'm trying to show is that this all is foretold in the Old Testament as well. 
Think about the value of this even in sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. Someone who doesn't know Christ, someone who just reads the Old Testament. You can show them how the Old Testament points to Christ. Friends, this is what we see in the book of Acts. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, preaching Christ from the Old Testament. They knew their Bible very well. They helped us see how these scriptures point to Jesus Christ. With these things in mind, my prayer is that we would know and believe the gospel of God, that we would value the Old Testament, and that we would share God's word with others. The world needs to understand the message that I preached this morning, that there is a God and it's not them. The world needs to understand that they are sinful. They're created by God, but they've rejected God and they're condemned because of their sin. The world needs to know that Jesus Christ came as 100% God and 100% man to die for sin, but that he rose again from the dead, and that's even what we celebrate during Easter. The world needs to know that they can have a relationship with God and that God will give them a new heart. You can know this from the Old Testament. You can know it from the New Testament. You can know it from the whole Bible. And that is the gospel according to the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've inspired it. I know this is a lot of information, God, but we thank you for what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We thank you that we can trust scripture this morning, that we don't have to be afraid of trying to study it. We don't have to be afraid that it's going to contradict itself, but that it's one unifying message that you've given to us. Help us now as we move to communion, as we remember what Christ has done for us Help us to respond according to as you would have us. In Jesus' name.